Shalom, and welcome to the Science of the Covenant podcast. Again, we give praises to the Most High and His Son, Yahusha. I'm Boyce Washington, and on the other side of me is Pastor Richard Washington. And we want to let our listeners know, we are broadcasting live every Shabbat, every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and we would love for you to join us. If you have any questions or comments while the podcast of live is alive, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. Pretty soon we will have a phone number where you can call in and ask your questions and give your comments soon. So be on the lookout for that soon. So I'm about to turn it over to my co-host, Pastor. What will we be talking today more on the Mark of the Beast? Okay, what we're doing, uh, I thought I may be able to get into the market today, but I need a little more background on it. I'm going to lay out a background. And I think we should initially begin, uh, begin to get into the market piece at the end of this discourse. And next week, you should be, we should be headlong into getting into the mark of the piece. So we're going to get a little more background here today. And dealing with uh, how Satan will bring this particular uh, mark of the beast about. So that's that's what we'll be dealing with. Awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, let us pray. Our loving Father, again, we covet the opportunity of being able to speak a word for you. And we pray, Lord, for the host, myself, and all of the listeners, and most of all, O Heavenly Father, we pray that individually that we may be able to take to heart the things, Lord, that you share with us, that we may be better prepared, Lord, for the things that are yet to come upon the earth, that even though we know they're coming, oh, Heavenly Father, brace us and give us the security that we need, that as we face these challenging days, we can face it with you, knowing that you would bring us through successfully. And those of us, oh, Heavenly Father, you see fit to lay to rest, then they can look forward to coming up in that first resurrection whereby they can be able to be restored all of the promises and all of the different scriptures that you have given to thy people. And in the end, may all of those who have been faithful to your cause have a life one day that will measure with the life of Elohim throughout eternity. So bless us in this step. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it. And for his sake, we do pray. Amen and amen. Okay, so uh, we want to go back to uh, the scriptures in Revelation chapter 13. Okay, in Revelation 13. So as we uh, continue our search and knowing how this market is going to be laid out, we're going to repeat some things and we'll be going into some things that we haven't uh, as of yet discussed. But here in Revelation 13, and uh, what we want to look at is just a verse or two. That's Revelation 13. And what we want to do is look at uh, verse number, let me see. We want to look at verse number, let us start with verse uh, number two. 5, 13, 5. He said, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, 
and the power was given unto him to continue 40 and two months. Now, what what we eventually will be getting up to is that this beaks that was doing the speaking, it was from the legislative halls of the government, and it said it's for 40 and two weeks, which we know is going to be 1,260 days and a day in prophecy is a year, so it's going to be 1,260 years. And many of the Bible scholars, when we talk about that 1,260 years, what we are talking about is from 538 B.C. to 1798 when uh, America was emerging as a nation. But there were some things that were going on in that period of time uh, that the beat, when the beast was speaking, that that period of time delineates that. And it says he opened his mouth in verse 6 of 13th chapter uh, with blaspheme against uh, Elohim and a blaspheme on his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in the heavens. Okay, so we know that there's an attack on Elohim and his character, his people, and his sanctuary. Okay, now when we continue to read in verse number uh, 8, of the same chapter 13, it said, And all they that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, okay, whose names are written, whose names are not written in the Lamb Book of Life, in the Lamb, uh, in the Book of Life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Okay, so what we are seeing here is that it said all going to be worshiped the beasts except for those whose names are in the Lamb's Book of Life, okay? So what we see here, he's going to bring about a worship service that not only locally, but around the world, individuals are going to be having the mark of the beast and worshiping him. So when we take an introspective look at how the mark of the beast will come about, it largely has to do with what is being said. In other words, when we talk about the mark of the beast, we have to look at what is being said. So in order for us to both determine what the mark of the beast is and how one receives it, we would have to understand what is being said. So what is it that is being said? Well, according to the book of Revelation, we are told about a mouth speaking, just as Satan spoke through the serpent, even so, he is speaking through heads of nations to carry out his agenda. Then what specifically is his agenda? His agenda has been the same ever since he was cast out of heaven and entered into the Garden of Eden, our first parents. Okay. So our first set of parents I had to recognize uh, what Satan was up to. Okay, so now let's turn to Revelation chapter 12. I want to look at verse number 9. Okay. So in Revelation 12, 9 it says, and, that, and the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world, he was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Now, you know, previously Previously, we said that uh, every the whole world is going to worship him, except for those written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But then when we read in Revelation chapter 9, 
it says he deceiveth the whole world. Okay, so if the whole world is worshiping him, the way he's getting them to worship him is that he deceived the whole world. They're they, they deceived. So we have to look at this world from the standpoint that living under a deception, that's one of his greatest, greatest tools. So Satan spoke through the serpent to Eve. He spoke through Nimrod to build a city which would rebel against the creator's will to spread out upon the earth. He spoke through Nebuchadnezzar to put the Hebrews in the fiery furnace. He spoke through the leaders of the Medo-Persian Empire to get Darius to be positioned for 30 days. He spoke to the Jewish leaders to influence the Roman governor to crucify uh, Yeshua, the Messiah. He spoke through the leaders of the churches in Rome to persecute those who went contrary to, to their dogmas over in Europe. And he is yet speaking through the legislative halls of America to exact laws to force us to worship today as they were forced to worship in days gone by. So Satan is seeking worship. That's what he's, that's what he's doing. And in a seeking worship, he's going to have the mark of the beast, the number of his name, and also his name. So this is what he is seeking today as in days gone by. So when we read in Revelation uh, chapter 13, verse 8, it said, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of the life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So what we see, he is setting the stage. So as he sets the stage, uh, he is pointing out to us that it's going to come a form of worship that we'll be dealing with. So as it spoke all down through the ages, he's still speaking. So what we also notice is that in Revelation 14 is an injunction given concerning the worship of the beast. Okay, let us look at this injunction that is given uh, concerning the worship of the beast. And so we turn to Revelation chapter 14, and we want to start with verse number 9. Revelation 14, 9 tells us this. It said, And the third angel followed them, saying, With a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead, or in his hand, okay? So the injunction is that there's going to be a consequence for those who worship the beast, okay, and receive his mark in his hand or in the forehead. And it goes on further to say in verse number 10, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of Elohim, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Okay, so what we are given here is that, like uh, Elohim is saying, that if you worship the beast, there are going to be the consequences 
of that particular burning. And notice it says, it'll be a fire with brimstone. Now, we understand that brimstone, when you look it up, is made out of sulfur. And sulfur is what we make matches out of. And so we get matches out of sulfur. So when it says a fire and brimstone, in other words, he's going to take the very elements of this earth, the sulfur, and he's going to light it with a fire. And this is going to be one of the consequences of those who worship the mark of the beast is that they would be in this burning, which would not be consumed, but it would consume all of those who are in it. So what we are having here is that Satan is saying that if you don't worship me, he's going to kill you. And Elohim is saying, well, if you don't worship me, you're going to get the same results. Okay, now we have to make a choice. Are we going to talk about temporary suffering or eternal suffering? A temporary suffering means, yes, you will suffer. But if you don't receive the mark of the beast, then you will live, live eternally. But if you choose to go against Elohim and what he wants you to do, that means you'll be satisfied with Satan. He won't do anything to you or kill you. But in the end, that's just a temporary stay because you'll end up in the eternal uh, flames. So what we are seeing here. There's consequences of doing what Satan says, and there's consequences of doing what the Savior says. So this is what Satan is trying to do. What is he doing? This worship of the beast is a serious matter. So what we have is Satan working through governments to carry out his desire to be worshipped. So what we want to probe into is both his motive and his method of acquiring worship of himself. So let us now turn our attention to these two considerations. We start with the motive, and we'll proceed with the method. In dealing with the two topics, we'll refer to them respectively as Satan's motif and uh, the uh, the satanic motif and the satanic strategy, okay? We want to deal with his, his motif and his strategy, okay? And we're going to start with his motive first, and then we'll go into his strategy, all right? So I want to, I want to turn to uh, Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, we want to look at Isaiah chapter 14, Okay, we're going to try to get the motive of what Satan is, is, is doing here. All right. Now, here we see in Isaiah chapter 14, and I'm going to read a few verses here. I'm going to start with verse number 12. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12 says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of Elohim. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Okay. Now, when we read that scripture, it's given us 
uh, indication of what he was about. He wanted to exalt himself. And in exalting himself, he wanted to be like the Most High. That's what the scriptures are saying. All right, now, you may want to hold that text because we'll come back to it, but we want to also turn to the book of Ezekiel, which also gives us uh, indication uh, about his character and his motive. All right, when we turn to Ezekiel chapter 28, I want to start with verse number 13. It says here in verse 13, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of Elohim, and very, every precious stone was thy covering, the sardas, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, and the sapphire, and the emerald, and the carbuncles, and gold, and the workmanship of thy tablets, and of thy pipes, was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou hast been, thou was upon the holy mountain of Elohim. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou was perfect in the way, in thy ways, from the day that thou was created till iniquity was found in thee. Verse 16 says, By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled thee, fill the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore I will cast thee as profane out of the mountain of Elohim, and I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Now, verse 17 goes on to say, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. So both Ezekiel and Jeremiah are pointing out about his motive the satanic motif is his motive was that he wanted to be worshipped and he got lifted up with pride. And it was this pride that caused him to do what he was doing. So in, in the verses that we have just read from Scripture, we can get a rather uh, good perception of Satan's motive. He's saying we cannot read motive, but Elohim, he can. He can read minds. He can read motives. We can only look at the behavior, but he can read it. And he's telling us that his motive was that he was lifted up. He was lifted up with pride. And so when, the, uh, when we get a rather good perception of Satan's motive as Elohim inspired his prophets to write what was in the man which motivated him. In Isaiah, it points out to us what was going on in the heart of Satan. He said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of Elohim. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will be like the Most High. So when we examine these things, 
which Satan articulated in his heart, one cannot fail to see that these utterances in his heart borderlined on him who wants to be worshipped. This is worship language. This is what he wanted. He wanted worship in heaven. Then when we read in Ezekiel the assessment of him, he tells us that Satan was the anointed cherub that covers. Now, anointed cherub, if you don't know about the sanctuary, it was the angels that stood in the presence of Elohim. And when the light of Elohim shone down upon these covering cherubs, it anointed them with that light. And Satan, or Lucifer, he got much wisdom from being in the presence of Elohim. And when he got that wisdom, the Bible says his wisdom became corrupt. He was using it in the wrong way. And it says that uh, he was upon the holy mountain of Elohim. His heart was <clears throat> lifted up because of his beauty. He was corrupted by his wisdom, by reasoning of his brightness. Okay, so when we see all of this, we see that what he was doing in trying to be on the mount where they were worshiping is that he wanted to worship himself. He wanted everybody to worship him. So from the picture being drawn of Satan in these accounts, we can see that he had a lot of pride. This pride led to covet the worship of Yeshua, who was named Michael in the heavenly courts. So when Satan said, I will be like the Most High, he was speaking about replacing Michael, who was the son of the Father. Now the Most High was Elohim, the Father. Satan is saying that he wanted to be like the Most High, which meant that like Michael was being worshipped by the angelical host, like his father, Satan coveted this worship, inclusive in his statement, to be like the Most High. He was also saying he wanted to be worshipped as such. Now, however, the only person or being who could be like the Most High was Michael. That was the only being in the universe that could be like him. As a matter of fact, the name Michael means one who is like El. When you break that name down, it means one who is like El. See, the word Michael has at the end El, and El means Elohim, the one that we call God. So El was the Elohim, and he was the only one like Elohim because that's what the name Michael means. So Michael was in the express image of his father, El Elyon. Now that we can see pretty well his motive, let us now see or look at his strategy. Now we're going to look at his strategy somewhere. And we call this the satanic strategy. We look at the satanic motive. Now we're looking at the satanic strategy. Now, in the same two passages we have looked at, we want to revisit them in order to discern Satan's strategy to have beings 
to worship him. See, he got a strategy to get us to worship him. Okay, now, here we are told, and we want to turn back to Revelation chapter 13, not Revelation, but Isaiah chapter 14, that is. And we want to look at verse 13, Isaiah 14, 13. Now, let us look at what, what, what is being said here. In verse 13 of the 14th chapter of the book of Isaiah, it says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of Elohim. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Okay. Now, we want to turn to uh, Ezekiel 28.14. Okay, now here's what it says in Ezekiel verse 14 of the 28th chapter of Ezekiel. Verse 14 says, Thou art the anointed church that covered and I have made thee so. Thou was upon the holy mountain of Elohim. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Okay. Now, when we look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 13, and Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 14, uh, they talk about mountains. Okay. They say something about mountains. Now, Ezekiel put it this way. In the 14th verse of the 20th chapter, he says the holy mountain of Elohim. He talks about a holy mountain. Okay. However, when we look at uh, Isaiah 14:13, it talks about the mount of the congregation. Okay. Now, we are to believe that the holy mountain and the mount of the congregation are one and the same. But Ezekiel looks at it as the mountain of uh, uh the, the holy mountain, but Isaiah speaks about the mount of the congregation, okay? So in Ezekiel, he speaks about Satan being an anointed cherub that covereth and, the, and that he was upon the mountain of Elohim. And when we read uh, this account uh, about a mountain in Ezekiel, it seems that he's pointing out that this is the angelic host who worship both uh, Yah, Yah and Michael from the holy mountain. That's where they were worshiping him. Okay. So when we read this about the mountain in Ezekiel, it seems to point out that this is the angelical host who worship both the Father, which is Yehoah, and Michael, who is Yeshua. And at one time, Satan served as a covering cherub, which stood in the presence of Elohim as all of the angelical hosts worship. Okay? So, now, when we look at Isaiah 14, 13, now when we read in this verse about the mountain, it speaks about the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. So there are at least two significant factors which we would, which, which sheds some light on Satan's strategy as to how he would set the stage for self-worship. As I pointed out, there are at least two factors 
Of these two factors, we'll start with the latter first and then the former the second. So when we look at Isaiah 14, 13, here in the latter half of the of this verse, it says, it says here, and I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. So it's pointing out he wanted to sit in the mount of the congregation where they were worshiping, and it points out that this place that he was talking about was in the sides of the north, in the sides of the north, okay? So here in the latter half of this verse, it speaks concerning the sides of the north, and we will refer to this part of our study as the locative worship, the locative. Now spell L-O-C-A-T-I-V-E, the locative worship. When we speak in terms of the locative worship, it is the location where worship is designed. And we are told that it was in the mount of the congregation. Moreover, it states that this mount was located in the sides of the north. So what is so important about, the, about being in the sides of the north? Well, what we understand about the sanctuary tabernacle was constructed by Moses is that we are told that the table of showbread was to be placed upon the north side of the tabernacle. So let us let us see how uh, this tabernacle was designed. We're going to turn to Exodus. And in Exodus chapter 40, uh, we want to look at verse number 22, Exodus 40, verse 22. Now, here's what it says. In other words, it says, And he put the table of the tent of the congregation upon the sides of the tabernacle northward without the veil. Okay, they had a veil in the sanctuary. And that veil separated the holy from the most holy place. But in the holy place, what you had, you had the southern wall and you had the northern wall. And it says that the northern wall was where they put the table of showbread. So if you would walk into the sanctuary uh, coming from the east side going toward the west, you would notice on your right hand was the northern wall and you would see a table of showbread. Okay. And that's where it was located. So now what we're trying to put together is that keeping in mind that this golden table of showbread was where 12 loaves of bread were always on display. Whenever you looked in there, you would always see 12 loaves of bread. Now, both the location and the arrangement on the table was by di divine design, okay? Okay, now let us turn to uh, Exodus chapter 25. Exodus chapter 25 and... What we want to look at is a couple of verses in Exodus uh, 25, uh, Exodus 25, in the construction of the tabernacle that Elohim had informed Moses that they were to rape, make. Okay, we want to look at Exodus chapter 25, and we're going to start with verse number, number 8. Now, here the Bible says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So he said, I want you to make me a sanctuary, and the sanctuary so I can dwell among you. And then he goes on to say in verse number 9, and I won't pay close attention to what he's saying. 
He said, according to all that I showed thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the instruments thereof, even so shall ye make it. In other words, he was telling Moses that when you make the sanctuary and also the instruments and the furnishings of the sanctuary, everything had to be made according to the pattern that I had shown thee. So now the making of the sanctuary and the arrangement of it and its furnishings and the positioning of them were also divinely given. The earthly sanctuary was to be laid out according to the pattern shown to Moses in the heavenly sanctuary. If that is so, and it is, then this would mean that if the north, north mountain that is being spoken of in the book of Isaiah is in heaven, it was a place where worship was to take place, then would not the north side of the earthly sanctuary uh, that takes place as well. So when we look at the earthly sanctuary, we have it on north wall. And then in Isaiah, it's saying that in the heavens that you had a mount on the north side, and it points specifically the north. In conjunction with the sanctuary laid out in Exodus of the earthly uh, sanctuary, let us also see it in the heavenly sanctuary as well. So we want to see if the earthly sanctuary can correspond with the heavenly sanctuary. So now let us turn to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we want to look at the fourth chapter, Revelation chapter 4. So here we find in Revelation chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 4 and 5. Okay, beginning with verse 4 of the fourth chapter of Revelation, and it says, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of Elohim. Okay, now we're going to get a picture here. Here in verses 4 and 5 of Revelation 4, here we are told that there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. Okay, now, which are the seven spirits of El? So Elohim had seven spirits, and they were represented by seven lamps that were burning. Now, if in the earthly sanctuary we have discovered that the table of showbread was located on the north side, this would mean that if Elohim's throne, which was facing the seven lamps, would mean that the seven lamps must have been on the south. So again, we can verify this by how the earthly sanctuary was arranged. So let us turn back to Exodus chapter 40. Okay, we're trying to get a picture here so we can see the strategy of what's going on with Satan trying to get people to worship him. 
Okay, now in Exodus chapter 40, we're going to look at verses 24 and 25. Now, here's what verse 24 says. Exodus chapter 40 and verse 24 says, And he put the candlesticks. Now, King James has candlesticks, but in actuality, the word should have been menorah. See, the menorah has seven branches. So I'll read it with the correct word. It's saying, And he put the menorah in the tent of congregation over against the table on the side of the tabernacle southward. So he's saying the location here is southward, okay? And verse 25 says this, And he lighted the lamps before Yehoah as Yehoah commanded Moses. So he's saying that these seven branch, this seven branch menorah had seven lamps, and the lamps respectively went upon each of the branches. You had seven branches, and then on top of each branch, you have had a lamp. So uh, when we look at that, then what we are looking at is we are looking at on the southern wall, we have pointed out that that's where the menorah was. And earlier, we pointed out that the side of the north is where the table of showbread was. So now we look at the locative worship, okay? So here we see in this passage of Scripture is that seven branches of the menorah was located, uh, one was located on the southern wall of the sanctuary, and the table of showbread was located on the northern side of the sanctuary. So now that we have looked at the locative worship, let us now consider the next factor, which deals with the meaning of the significance of the mountain. We want to see what is the significance of that mountain. We refer to this part of our study as the locative meaning. We want to look at the locative meaning. Now, we know what the locative worship is, which is where worship was was had. In other words, that's where they activated their worship, in the mountain, and it was on the mountain of the north. Now we want to probe into the meaning of this place of worship in the north. We want to look at the meaning of it. So again, we want to revisit the texts in Isaiah and Ezekiel dealing with the mount or the mountain where worship of the El and his son was taking place. So we want to turn back to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel chapter 28, and uh, in Ezekiel 28, we want to uh, look at verse 14 again. Okay, Ezekiel 28, 14. All right. So here in the 14th verse of the 28th chapter of Ezekiel, it says, it said, and there shall be, let me see, Let's see, 2814. Okay, I was reading the wrong All right, got it now. It said, Thou art the anointed cherub that cover it, and I have set thee so. Thou was upon the holy mountain of Elohim. Okay, so now it's pointing out in Ezekiel that he was in the holy mountain of Elohim. So when we look at the locative meaning, here we are told that Satan served as an anointed cherub upon the holy mountain of Elohim. And when we deal with the holy mountain in uh, 
going back to Isaiah 14 and verse 13. Now, here's how he deals with the holy mountain. In verse 13 of the 14th chapter of Isaiah, he says, For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of El. I will also sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. So this side of the north had a mountain, and it says Satan wanted to sit upon the mount of the congregation. Okay. He wanted to sit upon the mount. Okay. Now, in one aspect, he was saying the mount, and another, in Ezekiel, saying the mountain. Okay. So when we look at the locative meaning, here we are told that Satan served as an anointed cherub. And when he deals with the holy mountain in Isaiah 14, 13, we are told that Satan was desirous of sitting upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. That's where he wanted to sit. Why do you want to sit there? That's where Elohim and his son, that's where they were. So he said, I want to get that worship. Okay, now let us turn. Uh, interestingly, the word for mountain in Ezekiel 28:14, and the word for mount in Isaiah 14, 13 comes from the same Hebrew word. And the Hebrew word for mount and mountain is the word har, H-A-R, har. That means mountain or mount. Now, this word har, the Hebrew word har, could be translated as a mountain or a mount or a hill. So when we look at this word, different, uh, they have different words for mountain, but when we take the word har that is found in the passages that we have just talked about, the word could be transferred mountain, mount, or hill. However, what we notice about Isaiah's word for mount is that it speaks about the mount of the congregation. So we have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean when it says the mount of the congregation? Consequently, the key to unlocking the meaning of the Mount of Congregation is this word, congregation. So let us probe into the word congregation. This word, congregations, comes from the Hebrew word, moed. Okay, moed. Interestingly, the word moed associates itself with a number of things. Let us observe some of these Moed associations. We have the following association. Okay. The first association, when we look up the word Moed, uh, a Moed is a meeting place. Okay. So wherever they met with Elohim, it was called the Moed, the place where they met. Another uh, another association of moed is a moed is the meeting itself. In other words, when you say you're meeting with Elohim, the very meeting was moed. Now another uh, uh, association is a moed is an appointed place. In other words, when Elohim meets with his people, he has an appointed place. Another association is. A moed is an appointed time. 
So when he meets with him, he's meeting at a particular time. So if we are rational about these associations and how they are related to both the locative worship and the locative meaning, we would see why Satan wanted to sit upon the mount of the congregation. As we have pointed out, the word moed has a plethora of associations. However, with these associations, it appears that one of the basic meanings of this word moed is appointed, is appointed. So when we look at the word appointed in Hebrew, the word that appointed comes from is the word moed. So when we look at congregation, it means moed. And when we look at the word appointed, it also is moed. So when one looks up the word appointed in the Hebrew, it is the word moed. Consequently, if appointed is the basic meaning of the word moed, then let us apply this basic meaning of which we associated with the words. Let us go back to see our association and substitute the word appointed. <clears throat> now, first association we dealt with was a moed is a meeting place. So if we substitute it, we would have or an appointed place. So if we say it is a meeting, Moed is a meeting place, that means it's an appointed place. The next one we dealt with was Moed is the meeting itself, or we could say an appointed meeting. So we got a Moed being a meeting itself, but it can also be an appointed meeting. A Moed is an appointed place, or we could say an appointed place, just simply a, a, an appointed place. A moed is an appointed time, or we can say it is an appointed time. So thus far, we can see that the word moed aligns itself with a place, with a meeting, and with a time. So here we have it. When we worship our creator, it involves a place, a meeting, and a time. So when we look at the Moed, we are dealing with a place, a meeting, and a time. Now that we know that Yah has a worship place, and a worship meeting, and a worship time, how does this same concept deal with ancient Israel in their worship. Let us consider the fact that when Moses referred to the tabernacle of the congregation, when he dealt with the tabernacle of which Yah instructed him to make, it is referred to as the tabernacle of the congregation. Okay. Now, this word congregations comes from the Hebrew word moed. Now, you see how that word is? When he talked about the the, 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 the tabernacle of the congregation, just like it talked about the mountain of the congregation. The mountain of the congregation was the Moed. Now we have the tabernacle of the congregation, which is also the Moed. So another way of referring to the tabernacle of the congregation, we could 
would be the tabernacle of the Moed. So if we understand that Moed is the place, the time, and the people, and the meeting, then when Moses was making the tabernacle for Elohim to dwell among his people, the whole purpose of the tabernacle was for the Moeds, for the sacred time, the sacred place, and the sacred people. That's what it was for. And if you look at Exodus 27-21, or Leviticus 1-1, or Numbers 1-1, or Deuteronomy 31-14, uh, they all speaks about the tabernacle of the congregation, which they are saying the tabernacle of the Moed. Therefore, when ancient Israel dealt with the worship of El, it's centered in the tabernacle of the congregation or the tabernacle of the Moed. Okay, I hope you see in the picture that the Moed was the basic thing of what draws his people to worship. Now, another question we want to address is prior to the construction of the sanctuary tabernacle, was the Moed, was the Moed in existence? Did we have the Moed, Moed in existence before Moses built the tabernacle of, uh, of the Moed or the tabernacle of the congregation? Okay. So let us see if we can locate the Moed prior to the time of Moses. So when we understand that Moses not only wrote the book, book of uh, Exodus, he also wrote the book of Genesis, and that was the first book that he had written. Okay, So let us see, see if we can locate the Moed prior to the time of Moses. When we trace the origin of the, uh, of the word Moed, it takes us all the way back to Genesis 1.14. So let's go back to Genesis 1.14. In Genesis chapter 1, in verse 14, here's, here's what it says. Genesis 1.14. It says in Genesis 1.14, And Elohim said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Okay. Now, when we go all the way back to Genesis 1.14, it shows some of the purposes of the celestial lights that Elohim had put into, into, into heaven. And one of the things that he says, it was going to be for seasons. And the reason why we're pointing out this word season is because uh, when we look at the word season, Moses is saying, yes, it's for signs and it's for days and years. However, what we want to observe in this text of Scripture is that the word season, we want to observe that word season. Now, here we find that the Hebrew word for season in this passage is moed, okay? It's moed. Even before man was created on the sixth day of the week, on the fourth day of the week, the moed, or the appointed things, were set in place from the beginning of creation. Now, so we'll stop here, but what we are stopping on is that Moed deals with where we worship, when we worship, and the meeting that we are worshiping in. And this has laid the foundation that when we deal with the strategy 
of how he's going to transfer worship, we'll be able to see distinctively clear of exactly what his plan is. So we'll take off from here next week, but we are closing here this week on the Moeds, which is the place, the meeting, and the time, and the people when they worship is all involved in the Moed. Okay, so a couple of questions. The first one um, is in regards to Revelation 14, 11. Uh-huh. What does it mean when it states that in the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night? Uh, not in your question as well. What does that mean, and who is that referring to? Okay, let's look at that. Uh, well, actually, that's referring uh, to the uh, those who receive the mark of the beast. Okay. And of course, it, 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 of course, it would be inclusive of the beast himself because he's he's the one that gave the mark. Okay. Uh-huh. And so, what is saying in fourteen eleven? It says. And the smoke of the torment ascended up forever and ever. In other words, uh, when you look at this from the Greek derivative, what it's saying when it said forever and ever, it's not going to burn forever, but it's going to be forever burned. In other words, I took a piece of paper and I lit the paper uh, and I said it's going to burn forever and ever. What what I'm saying is once the fire has done its work, it's going to go out, but Uh it's going to be forever burned. Okay. Okay. Not necessarily it's going to be burning forever. Okay. okay? Because... Because even when it speaks about Sodom and Gomorrah, it says it's going to burn up forever and ever, you know. But mm-hmm. we know that Sodom and Gomorrah is not burning today, but that it burned up and it's forever burned up. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So when we deal with uh, verse 11 of the 14th chapter, it said, In the smoke of that torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image. In other words, what it's saying is when they start to burning, they're not going to have no rest. Now, we know, according to the teachings of the scriptures, that some going to burn more than others, and the person that's going to burn the longest is Satan himself. Uh-huh. So how long this fire is going to be burning, I don't know, but he says whatever it starts burning, it's going to start burning. It's not going to go out until it finishes his work. Uh-huh. And, uh, and uh, when we look at day and night, he's just merely saying is that it's going to burn and burn until he annihilates that which he wants to get rid of. And so he uses this phrase, this phrase night and day to mean that whatever time it takes, this is how long it's going to burn. And then when it's burned up forever and ever, and this is the consequences of those who have the image or who say I would receive his mark or his name. Mm, okay. Um, was Satan more beautiful than the other angels? Uh, let me, let me, that's a good question. Uh, let me, let me put it this way so we can put it in perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, I don't think he's more beautiful than any, in, in, in the other, of the other angels, but I mm-hmm. think he was more embellished because when you look at Ezekiel and, uh, I, I believe it's in Ezekiel and how he was made and how his voice was, uh, had these different pipes in it that he could sing, uh, in a choir, six parts, if you wanted to. That's that's how glorious his voice voice was. Wow. And and and, and then when you look looked at him, uh, his wings, I think he was a. I don't know if 
they say he was a they had cherub rims, but uh-huh. I think he was a seraphim, and I think he had about six wings. Okay. Okay. So he was very beautifully made, and the Bible says that that's where Elohim made him. Uh-huh. He was very brilliant. You, you see, and when you look at Satan, he was one of the most beautiful angels that was in glory. But now, <clears throat> uh, was he more magnificent than the other angels? Well, in the sense in which he was embellished, but <clears throat> we had taken consideration that when we look at beauty, it's not always just the embellishment. But when the other angels were made, even though they were not made with what he had, they were uh-huh. still beautiful angels. It's just like <clears throat> you can see a woman today. She may be decked down with all kind of jewels and stuff, okay? But if you look at a plain woman, you can still see the beauty of a plain woman. Yeah. So, yes, he was, He, in some instances, he was made and ornamented more than other angels. And the Bible says all kind of precious stones was on him and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That was beautiful. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, he still made the perfection of angels that they were beautiful as well. I'm pretty sure Gabriel is is, is, is beautiful, even though uh, he didn't have all of what what uh, Lucifer had. So beauty can be when you have ornamentations on or embellished or in just plain beauty. Mm. But the fact is, he was so beautiful, he got lifted up because of his beauty. And he was so brilliant, he got lifted up because he was so had so much wisdom. And that was his downfall. He corrupted himself. Now, you said he was he was adorned with uh, many precious stones. Mm-hmm. Now, was I wonder, were there any other angels adorned, or was he the most adorned out I of think, the angels? I think he, well, let's go to uh, Ezekiel. I think he was most, most adorned. I don't think he... He was the only one that was doing, but uh, if I, you know, he points out that's that's how he was. Okay. Uh-huh. Now, now when we go to Ezekiel twenty-eight, uh, it it, it, uh, it I think it gives uh, points out some things about him. Okay, here, uh, in Ezekiel chapter twenty-eight, let me see, um, let me see, let me tell you. Let me see. All right, in, in verse number, uh, let's see. Well, let me see in verse seventeen. Uh, let me see. You know that 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 points about that's talking a lot about his his, his wisdom. Maybe maybe it was in uh, Isaiah twenty-eight. Let me see. Let me see. Let me check that out real quick. It gives a, a description about all what he had. Okay, in Isaiah chapter 14, let me see. And let me see. Let me see. Isaiah 14, let's see. Let's 
was trying to find a part where it was saying about those uh, precious stones mm-hmm. and uh, how he was embellished with those and how beautiful he was. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Maybe it was in Ezekiel. Let me go back to Ezekiel then. Yeah. Let me see. Okay, here it is in Ezekiel 28, 13. Here's what it said. He said, And thou hast been in Eden, the garden of Elohim. He said, Every precious stone was thy covering. Mm. And it goes on to enumerate the various stones that he was covered with. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then it says, The workmanship of your, your tablets and of your Thy pipes, in other words, talking about his throat, this is why he could sing so melodious, mm-hmm. was prepared in thee the day that thou was created. So it mm-hmm. talks about all of those precious stones, you know, just like when you look at the, the high priest, he wrote a breathplate, and he had a lot of those precious stones to represent the different uh, nations of Israel, you know. Mm-hmm. But Satan, he, uh, I guess he was a type of priest too, but not in the same sense, but he was decorated with all of these stones, and he was the one that could sing and lead the angelical choir. His throat was made different from any other angel. And his embellishments and all of these stones make him look very beautiful. This is why I like, guess a lot of people today, they like to wear chains of gold and diamonds and rings yeah. and necklaces and all this stuff around themselves so they can appear more beautiful. But Satan inherently had these things when he was created. Mm. Wow. Now, um, who again was Michael? Uh, Michael was, uh, that was in heaven, that was Yeshua. But Michael means one like one who is like God or who is like God. That's what, okay. it, that's what the name Michael means. Okay. So that, See, that was describing Yahushua, his son? His son, yeah. See, okay. he, he wasn't trying to co- covet uh Satan was not trying to cover the father's position, but he said, I want to be like the most high. See, he said he wanted to be like the most high. So we know the mm-hmm. most high was the father, but he said, I want to be like him, but he couldn't be like him. First of all, he was an angel. And the second thing is that, uh, uh, Yeshua, he came forth from the father. Mm-hmm. He was his son. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, when you have the name Michael, which means like Elohim, it means that he was the one that came forth from him to be able to be like him. So when you look at the name Michael, it means who is like God, or it means who is, uh, it's asking a question. One of the questions is asking, who is like God? They're Mm -hmm. asking you the question, who is like God? That's what the name Michael means. And then another meaning is, uh, who is, who is like God? It's not asking a question. It is telling you who is like God. So mm-hmm. in that name, Michael, you got two different uh, ways you can interpret Michael. It means it's asking you a question, who is like God? And then it's answering its own question by saying uh, Yeshua or Michael is the one that is like God. Mm-hmm. And Satan is saying, hey, since you have been worshiped up there, I want to be like him. I want to be like that because I know if I can be like that, I can be worshipped just like the sun is being worshipped. Now, I wonder who came first. Was it the sun 
or was it uh, Lucifer Satan? Oh, who came first? Yeah. And you saying did Satan come first, or did uh, or did the Son come first? Okay, that because that, I'm just wondering, mm-hmm. is if 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 Satan came first, and he was adorned with all these things from the Father, and then the Son comes along. I can see that's probably why Satan maybe got jealous and said, you know, that should be me, not him. But the difference is, like you said, he came from the the son, came from the father, whereas Satan was created to do a job. Satan was created to do a job? Mm -hmm. Where he didn't come from the father, actually from the father. The father created him. Yeah, but uh, I guess one of the ways I would approach that question is, is that, uh, if he was created, I, w- I would uh, I would think that uh, Yeshua was already in existence because okay. he 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 would probably he was probably just like when Adam was created, uh-huh. uh, Yeshua was right there with, with Adam. You went to follow when you created Adam. So uh, I would think that you know, he was a part of creating Satan. Okay. Yeah. So if he was a part of creating Satan, then I, I would think that he was before Satan. Before him. Okay. Uh, okay. Okay. That's my assessment. But l- let me let me read this in the book of Hebrews. It might give a little shed a little light on that. Okay. The Bible says here in Hebrews chapter one. Uh, he says, mm, uh, well, I, I'll start reading with verse one. It said, Elohim, who has sundry, who has sundry times and diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, okay, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom he also made the worlds, okay? So so we know that the son was there when he created all of the worlds. And by having the S on worlds, we know that he got more than one world, okay? Mm. All right, now, let us jump down to... Uh, uh, verse number, uh, 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 let me see. Well, I'll tell you what, let's, let's read on down, I think. No, well, I'll tell you, we, let's jump down to verse 4. Okay, and in verse 4 it says, being made so much better than the angels, okay, talking about Yeshua or Michael, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. It says, for Unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be unto him a father, and he shall be to me a son. He said, What what other being outside of Michael, what other being than my son that I've said said this to? Okay. He said, Whatever. Uh-huh. He, he's only talking about one. And now notice what verse six says. And he says this, and again. When he bringeth his firstborn, or his first first begotten, uh-huh. he said, when he bringeth his first begotten, and we know who his first begotten is. He said, when he brings his first begotten into the world, he said, and let all the angels of Elohim worship him. Uh-huh. So now we got to believe that when he came into the world, every all the angels got to worship him. It was the same thing going on in heaven. All of the angels had to worship him. Uh-huh. But Satan got to the point that he didn't want to worship him. He wanted to get that worship. Yeah. So I believe, according to this, that Satan, uh, that uh, Yeshua or Michael was already in existence before Satan came, because he and the Father created all of the angels. And you, you know what's interesting is that how 
Satan wants all the glory. Mm-hmm. Never once had I heard Yahushua say he wants the glory. He always mm-hmm. pointed everything to back to the Father. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Back to the Father. It's not mm-hmm. about me. It's about the Father. Mm-hmm. You know, but it's just funny. Satan is 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 only about him. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Uh, one last question before we move on. You said that Elohim has seven spirits. Mm-hmm. And all. Uh, and do those seven spirits do different things, or they just comprise of him? Okay, well, that's a good question. Uh, actually, actually, it's it's only one spirit. Okay. Okay. All right, it's only one spirit, but we know how they say seven because it, uh, you can look at seven spirits from at least two angles, if not three. Mm-hmm. The first, first of all, uh, the church is represented by the menorah. Okay. Okay. And he has seven churches according to the book of Revelation. Mm-hmm. But is it seven churches? No. Basically, it's just one church. It's just one church. Mm-hmm. But the seven churches are seven, maybe periods of time that we calculate. So, you know, we're living in the last days of earth history, which is the Laodicean church. But you side with the church of Ephesus, and when you count them, it's seven. Mm-hmm. But it's actually one church together, you know. Okay. okay, so now if you notice that the seven uh, seven uh, branches of the menorah that represents the seven churches also has seven lamps on them, mm-hmm. and each lamp represents the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, the second interpretation that we get is, is, is not only that it's a seven represents perfection. Yeah, it represents perfection. And when it says seven spirits or seven churches, it's talking about seven it's talking about a perfect church or the perfect spirit. But the next interpretation that we have is that when he talks about seven, even though it's talking about seven, it's talking about seven dispensations. Okay. Just like when you had the church back in Moses day, mm-hmm. it may be different from our day. So that that's, that's the time of the church. But then when you get up to John's day, when he was writing this, he was talking about seven uh, churches or seven locations and like Ephesus, Philadelphia, these were locations there were seven locations, but they still represented the same church. Just like you can have have a church today, uh, and you maybe have five or six churches in one area, and then another area they may have the same church, but they all go by the same name. Uh-huh. They one church, but seven different church bodies. You know, okay. So when he says seven uh, spirits, when John was looking at that, and it was revealed to him, those spirits, as we were pointing out in our discourse, that they were facing the throne, and the throne was located on the table of showbread. Mm-hmm. So when he saw those seven uh, lamps, each lamp represented the spirit in the time in which it was operating in that particular church. Okay, so okay. in each church, you had the spirit operating. So and when you have the different churches in different times, uh, uh, singularly, it's one spirit. But when you look at all the seven different times and geographical locations, in 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 a sphere of time and place, it was seven. Okay. So he said seven spirits. So uh, it didn't mean it was seven. It just meant at seven different times and places that the spirit operated. But he just said it collectively that these are seven spirits, even though they were one. Okay. All righty. As we. 
transition to our next segment. Up next is Let's Talk About That. So today, kind of going on what we talked about in the last podcast, uh, if you haven't listened to it, it's available today. You can go listen to it today. Um, last week, we had a discussion regarding mushrooms, and we started talking about other things as far as for food, plants, and seeds. So I kind of want to talk about that today. So if you have your Bibles or you want to follow along, uh, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 30. Again, that's uh, Genesis 1, chapter 29, verse 29 and 30. And it reads, And Elohim said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for food, and to every beast of the earth and every fowl of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth wherein there is life, life, I have given every green herb for food, and it was so. So we see here that uh, with food, that anything we eat that he's given us should produce a seed. So my question, Pastor, is when sin entered the world, did it, we know it altered the mentality of animals. Did it also alter the plants? Yeah, uh, uh, definitely. Yeah, it, it altered. What, what we could do, uh, now you read that passage, and the passage that you read was before sin, okay? Yes. Okay, so let's let's find out what happened to the plant world after sin. Okay. So let's turn to uh, Genesis chapter 3. And in the third chapter, Genesis uh, chapter 3, we'll look at uh, what happened after uh, you know, sin came in to the plant world. Okay, let's go to uh, Genesis 3.18. Okay. Uh, let's see. Oh, well, actually, let's start at 17. Okay. Let's start at 17. It said, And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and has eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake, and in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. So he said he cursed the ground okay. because of what Adam did. Now, if you want to really look at this, it was not really Elohim cursing the ground. It was Adam who really, really cursed the ground because mm-hmm. he's the one that broke the covenant. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, but anyway, he's telling them what's going to happen. And then in verse 18, it says, Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Okay, so now this is uh, this is suggestive of the fact that once Adam sinned, then the curse came upon the land. Okay, and okay. then uh, when you look at when it came upon the land, Apparently, in the Garden of Eden, um, they didn't have thorns and thistles, okay? So, if there were thorns and thistles, where did they come from, okay? Now, here's what we do know, uh, is that uh, when we look at, uh, in the same third, third chapter, it says, 
in verse 23, therefore, uh, Yahuwah Elohim sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Okay, now, now here's what I want you to see is that he said, he told them that uh, they shouldn't eat, but when they ate, he told them, he said, now the ground is going to bring forth thorns and thist thistles. Uh -huh. Now, where did those thorns and thistles come from? It couldn't have come from the Garden of Eden because he put him out. Uh -huh. Okay, so when he put him out, he, I guess he didn't want the Garden of Eden to be uh, contaminated because we see back over in Revelation, it talks about the Garden of Eden being in heaven okay. because it talks about the Tree of Life, and the Tree of Life was in heaven. I mean, in the garden. So the whole garden is, is back in heaven. So the thorns and thistles was on the earth outside of the Garden of Eden. Uh -huh. And now he was going to have to till the soil because of his sin to be able to have substance and bread and the necessary uh, nourishment to eat. So it affected the soil. And when it affected the soil, it affected the plants. And when it affected the plants, then... Uh, the, the plants were not going to flourish as they would have had not Adam sinned. Okay, so because Adam sinned, everything, well, not everything, but certain things start to have thorn and thistles. And so um, they would have to work the ground in order to bring forth food as opposed to if they were still in the garden they wouldn't have had to do that well they would uh actually if you read it uh the way it is is being portrayed here mm -hmm. uh well he, all right let's let's go back to uh, uh 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 genesis 2 let me see and uh, let me see and let me see it's around nine. Okay, let me see what nine said. Okay, well, let's start with verse eight. It said, and uh, Yehoah Elohim planted the garden eastward in Eden. Okay. Okay. So we know there was a place they call Eden, but in the eastern portion of this place called Eden, the, uh, Elohim planted a garden. Okay. And he said, he put the man in whom he had formed, and out of the ground he made the man to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, now this this was this was in 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 the garden. Okay, uh -huh. okay, but now verse fifteen is the one that we want to look at. It said, and Yehoah Elohim took the man and put him in the garden to uh, in the garden of Eden to dress him to keep it. Now, okay. which meant that if they're going to dress and keep the garden, they had to straighten it out. They had to do work, mm -hmm. but they would, it wouldn't, it wouldn't, the work that they were doing in gardening and keeping it would not have been laborious mm -hmm. and causing them strain. But when they sin, that reduced their strength. Now, mm -hmm. what's going to happen is that when they try to tilt the ground, it is saying in verse 19 of the third chapter, it said, In the sweat of thy face shall thou eat bread, okay, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it was thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So once sin came, it was going to be a hardship 
in tilling the soil. Mm-hmm. And in that hardship, they would they would be sweating in their face just to have the ground to yield the fruits that it should in cultivating the soil. But I don't they wouldn't have had that if had they not sinned. Okay. So since sin changed everything, um are there certain plants that herbs that we shouldn't eat? Uh, you know. That we shouldn't eat? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> well, uh, let, let, let's see. Uh, let's see what the uh, scriptures uh, uh, would impose upon us that we can maybe discern that. Because okay. we, we know... Mm-hmm. Uh, he makes it clear about the clean and unclean animals that you can and can't eat. So mm-hmm. is there anything in scripture that says even about the plants that we should partake and not partake of? Okay. I, I'm, let me see. Um, if we can, uh, let me see. All right. It was a text I was reading earlier in, in the Genesis. Uh, let me see. Um, let's see. Oh yeah. Uh, all right. Let's see. Uh, I think it's. Let's see. Let's see. I was I was looking for I think I had just read it. Uh, uh-huh. Let me see. Do you have any uh, what the verse no. entails a little bit? Okay. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm gonna go back to the text that you read earlier. Okay. Okay. It says, "And Elohim." Uh, this is one twenty nine Genesis one twenty nine. It says. Uh, and Elohim said, Behold, I have given every green herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat. Okay, and then it says, And to every beast, now, notice uh-huh. notice what he's saying uh, to the beast. He said, And every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to everything that creeps upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given the green herb for meat, and it was so. Now, it seemed to me that the herbs were not eaten for man, not for beasts, yes. But it looked like herbs uh, for man wasn't eaten until after man sinned. Mm. And once once he sinned, uh, then... It looks like that's when he told man that he should eat of the herbs, okay? Mm. Okay. So, okay. let me see. Yeah, because me see. Be, mm-hmm. be, 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 in 29, it sounds like everything that man was supposed to eat was supposed to have a seed. Yeah, but, because it came from the tree, yeah. Yeah, but when he describes so the beast of the earth... It didn't mention any type of seeds whatsoever. So, 
Mm-hmm. I, I think you kind of get at, at at C, but what I was trying to say is mm-hmm. in 318, even though uh, they, they they had uh, herbs, it said mm-hmm. after sin, it says thorns and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat herbs of the field. So it looked okay. like they was eating the herbs after uh, after sin. Yeah. Now getting to the seed part, now what we notice on the seed is that earlier, okay, let us go back up earlier. Okay, when we deal with Genesis uh, 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 chapter 1, and we deal, we start with verse 11, dealing with the seed, it says, okay. and Elohim said, let the earth bring forth grass, okay, All right. and herb yielding seed, so the, the, the herbs still have seed in it, because okay. he says, the herb yielding seed, uh-huh. Okay, and the fruit tree dealing uh, fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth, and it was so. So not only did the trees have it, but it's saying here that also the herbs had seeds as well. Mm. Okay. Okay. Now, what what I would, what I would distinguish is is that uh, he was saying that all of the green herbs, but we know all of the green herbs that some of them can be poisonous herbs. Uh-huh. So, so they, they have to be of a, of a nutritional benefit. Now let us turn to, uh, let's turn to Ezekiel, uh, chapter 47, Ezekiel chapter 47. Okay. Okay. okay Ezekiel. And in the 47th chapter of Ezekiel, uh, let's see. We want verse, verse 12. Okay. 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 Now, Ezekiel uh, 40, 47, 12 says this, And by the river upon the brink thereof, and on this side and on that, shall grow all trees for meat, okay, whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof, be consumed, it shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issue out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, and the leaf thereof for medicine. Okay. Mm. All right. Now, if you notice that passage in Isaiah, it it's not only uh, passage that he is giving us for his time. Uh-huh. But he's looking forward uh, to the future, you know. And so what was the future indication of this text? All right, we turn to Revelation chapter 22. Okay. Revelation chapter 22, it said, and in the midst of the street, well, that's 22, 20, uh, Revelation 22, verse 2, in the midst of the street of it, and on either side the river of the river was there, a tree of life which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now that sounds almost identical what uh, uh, Ezekiel is saying. So when we look at the, the, the trees and especially the fruit trees, he is pointing out to us that these fruits are good and the leaves are also good 
you know, for medicine and stuff, even mm-hmm. though I don't think we're going to get sick in heaven. But, but it's pointing out to us the nutritional value of both the leaf and the fruit. So, so I would say that when we deal with the seed and of the fruit, that it has to be wholesome. Mm-hmm. And like we have to distinguish, just like when Moses was making a sanctuary, that was certain herbs and plants that he used to make the apothecary uh, perfumes and the ointments that he made. But some of those ointments uh, or perfumes that they, they use, they could be eaten and mixed with other nutritional foods, just like frankincense. They put that on bread and they could eat it. Then there were certain aromatic spices that I don't think you could eat it, like cassia and stuff like that. You may could, but those was very potent. And if you did, you probably had to eat it in smaller quantities because I know today when I get cassia, mm-hmm. which is one of the priestly per- things that they use for the perfume, you cannot you cannot eat it. It's, it's aromatic, uh, ar- uh, aromatic in the uh-huh. sense that it's good for smells and it smells sweet and stuff, but you cannot eat it. Uh-huh. And so we have to be particularly clear that when he says eat of the trees and the herbs, that they fit the descriptions of that which is edible rather than those that to be smell. And then there's poison uh, type of poison plants that they may serve another purpose, mm-hmm. but all herbs are not designed to eat. So all herbs are not designed for us to consume. Right. So it's interesting that it said that a tree that bears fruit Mm-hmm. And that the leaves are for healing mm-hmm. and all. And how you read in Revelation says that the leaves of the tree were healing of the nations. Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering what significance Yah is using that because I would think that uh, the nations would be the 12 tribes, I would think, right? Mm-hmm. So. It sounds like the tree is going to play a part in healing that relationship that has gone away with the Most High. Yeah. Uh, well, one of the things that I look at is that when you go all the way back to Genesis, is that when they talk about the green plants, they're talking about you know chlorophyll. Uh-huh. You know, that's yeah. the chlorophyll in the plant, which is the green. Okay. Then when you get to Ezekiel and uh, Revelation, they still talking about. Uh, you know, the plants and the leaves for the healing of the nation. Now, they found out that I think it was doing, I, I think it might have been during World War II or something. Mm-hmm. They were saying that oftentimes when they needed blood, uh, if they didn't have the blood, they could use chlorophyll uh, really? to put it put into a person until they could get the blood to sustain it for life. Uh-huh. And they, they were saying the difference between chlorophyll and blood is that the center of the blood molecule is iron and the center of the chlorophyll molecule is magnesium. Hmm. Okay. So, uh-huh. so magnesium could stand for blood until you could get the blood transfusion that you wanted because in order for the blood to be cleansed, you need chlorophyll. This is why in swimming pools, they put chlorophyll in there uh-huh. to clean it. So when you got chlorophyll going to the body, it cleanses the cells, okay? It purifies the blood. 
Okay. So when you got that chlorophyll going into you, you got life that is going into you. And so with that life, it is able to sustain you. So when you have blood and you have chlorophyll, then they can, in a way, compensate for, for one another. So when it says the leaves are for the healing of the nation, in other words, it's saying not only the healing, but it's for life of the nations, and it's found in your food. So when you get that chlorophyll in you, you get in life, and it's going to give you the healing that you need throughout eternity because you're constantly getting that green in you. Because, mm. you know, it's interesting that, you know, most of our plants are green. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it is, it, it, there are a few, you know, the fruits that uh, come about. But mm -hmm. of the fruits that come about, parts of it is still green. I think just about every uh, fruit or vegetable, the vine or the leaves of it are always green, mm -hmm. pretty much. Whether you go from apples or the vine from mm -hmm. a watermelon, it's always green. Yeah, sure. All. And when you get to the herbs, like sweet potatoes, potatoes and stuff grow on the ground, mm -hmm. even though they may not be green, but when they blossom, you know, they have a green uh, mm -hmm. part that comes out. Yeah. Now, when you deal with mushrooms, they don't necessarily have green, but uh, what it do, what it does is sort of like alfalfa. Now, alfalfa is a green plant, mm -hmm. but it goes down into the soil and get the trace minerals and the things that we need because we don't not, not only need vitamins, but we need minerals to hold the vitamins within our bodies. So we need those trace minerals, and so we find that mushrooms, like alfalfa they go down into the ground and get the trace minerals that we need. And even though it's not green, if we put it into our bodies, we got the trace minerals that we need in order for the vitamins to be effective in our bodies. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, we definitely, um, you know, it was, well, it was definitely eye opening kind of reading, Genesis 129 over again because mm -hmm. I didn't it didn't really dawn on me that basically everything most of the things he had for us to eat had seeds and reproduces seeds yeah and, um, that's that that's that that's quite a study in, in itself you know I see see a lot of these things uh even though we've been in church 50 40 30 10 15 years and stuff like that these are some of the subjects that we have not talked about. This is why I'm trying to free my hand so I can deal with subjects uh -huh. that should be talked about and make it commonplace because a lot of people are not uh, being able to see this because the preachers are not preaching, the teachers are not teaching, and, and it's, it's not being taught, and the books are not being written by scholars on this. So it's bypassed, but we should get into that. And as we get into that, then we can understand more about a plant-based diet uh -huh. and also what we should and shouldn't eat, but we'll be intelligent on it. So these are some things I look forward to that we can be able to, you know, get out and to be able to express it more fully. Yeah. I know. And uh, next week I, I kind of want to discuss too, um, let's talk about it, tying in to we see a lot of plants and herbs and food now. Uh -huh that are node seeds that's been bio that's basically made in a lab. And is that, should we be partaking of these things 
and all. And I want to talk about next week how possibly it may lead into also the mark of the beast. You mm-hmm. know, because I think it's going to be many avenues that's going to lead to the mark, not just one. And I think we're just looking at, I think a lot of times we look at it as just one way leading into the Sunday worship. But I think a lot of things come into play that will lead to many people probably falling and getting the mark. Yeah, well, if, if you know, well, if people have limited uh, the mark of the beast to Sunday, but like I said, we haven't gotten that yet. But uh, if they limit it to Sunday, they will be limited on the ways in which uh, this is going to, you know, transpire. But what we're going to study is a system. And when we look at the system, I think it's going to be much more comprehensive than just Sunday. Okay. So, Pastor, can you take us to the throne in prayer as we get ready to close out for this week? Okay. Father in heaven, again, we thank you that we can have a dialogue and a discourse. And as we look at the discourse, oh, Heavenly Father, as we lead to the market of peace, that we may be intelligent about how this thing is going to come about. Because the one who is causing the market of peace, he is one of the most intelligent beings that you've created. And so as we look at him, oh, Heavenly Father, that we may have ears to hear, oh, Heavenly Father, and as we hear, we can have understanding. He that has an ear to hear what the Spirit has to say can be able to be anointed to be able to see what the plot of him who is to deceive all in worshiping him. And so we would ask, oh, Heavenly Father, that you would give us the discernment. And as we go to the marketplace back and forth, that we may only pick the plants and the plant-based diets, that you would have to go into our bodies without eating the things, O Heavenly Father, that come to us from the earth that are not made edible, that we may have bodies, O Heavenly Father, to be able to support the things of creation and the things of creation can support us. But we realize that when Yeshua was on the cross, they gave him vinegar, that comes from a plant. But he realized that that which they was given him was contaminated, O Father. And because of the contamination, he spit it out and he would not take it into his system even though he was dying on the cross. And so help us to shine anything that would be cloud our minds from the clear plan of salvation and to be able to see the Torah and your will, because oftentimes that which we eat influences our lives. So bless me, bless my host, bless those who listen, and most of all, oh, Heavenly Father, help us to take these things to heart. And as we do them and share them and live them out, oh, Heavenly Father, we can be the witness that you would have us to be. So bless us this day, another Shabbat, and if it be your will and your grace, bring us back again next week at the same time to be able to discuss more of your will and that the covenant, oh, Heavenly Father, may be a part of us, that when Yeshua do, do, does come, that we can be ready to meet him in peace. In his name we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. But the mercy of Yahuwah is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him and his righteousness until his children's children. Two, such as guard his covenant and to those that remember his commandments to do them. Until next week, Shalom.